This is Being Human. I'm your host, Richard Atherton. John Williams, author of two UK bestseller books and a facilitator of dozens of corporate escapees. Welcome. Hi, Richard. Thanks for inviting me. No, no. You realize, I just realised, aren't we two world experts on broadcast technical strategy in a, in a previous life? So I thought the podcast was all going to be about technical strategy. I hope you haven't got it wrong. Have I? <laughs> well, we could, we, could, we could go to that room. We'll get to that later, maybe. Yeah. It's actually been a few years since, like, yeah. I'm not sure. We're probably both pretty out of date when it comes to broad tech. I have no idea at all. No, that was like a di- that really was a di- different life 20 years ago or something. Yeah. God, is it? It's been that long. No, it was yeah, so we should both quickly explain for the listeners the reference there. So both John and I are former technology consultants, and we both happen to be te- consulting on technology in the media broadcast space. Yeah. So that's, where, in fact, where we first... Although we met at Comedy Club. That's true, but we did, hadn't we already crossed paths as consultants? No, we hadn't. No, we, we had just... a very surreal conversation where... Uh, I said, who, who do you work for? And he said, I work for Deloitte. And I went, I work for Deloitte. And he said, well, what section? And I said, telecoms, media, and whatever the other T stands for, I can't remember. And, uh, and he said, well, so do I. And we'd never met each other in the building because you were always okay. up in projects. And, okay. uh, and, you were, and, you, and you were never placed. <laughs> and went, What's that? You were never placed. You were always on the bench. Yeah, yeah. I was always doing nothing. Yeah, but didn't get a very good deal out of me. We were doing cutting edge work, but nobody wanted to buy yet. <laughs> okay, right. You're the researchers. Yeah. Mm. So, so we've both kind of escaped that world, although you've, you've taken some big leaps out of corporate space uh, and helped others to do so, haven't, haven't you? So, yeah. so let's start there with your, your first book, which you broke free, which you broke through mm. on, and, uh, and yeah, and how, how you've helped people to, to break free. Yeah, well, uh, when I walked out of Deloitte in 2003, I think it was, I promised myself, I said I never wanted to have a job ever again. And, um, you know, for some people, working at Deloitte and being a senior managing consultant would be their dream job, which is fine. But for me, it just didn't suit me at all. And I wanted something more flexible, wanted to be able to do whatever I wanted to do with whoever I wanted to do it, you know, when I wanted to do it. So I always wanted to work for myself. And I, I first of all, did the stepping stone of being independent consultant at places like the BBC where you also did a lot of work and then built up this whole new career where I trained as a psychotherapist and life coach and um, started running creative events for uh, live events for creative people in London called Scanners Night. Scanner being somebody with lots of ideas, lots of interests who finds it difficult to choose and not very good at finishing things and uh, I ran creative events for people like that because I was one. And, um, and then I started uh, helping people with their careers and ended up getting a book deal, partly because of Scanners Night and some other things I was doing. And uh, that, that book became Screw Work, Let's Play. And it seemed to hit a nerve at the moment it came out in 2010. But um, people felt well, there's got to be a different way of looking at work and managing your career, which does not involve golf for life and hiding your personality at work and all those other kinds of things. That was really my escape plan. Oh, well, it wasn't, wasn't really planned very well, but anyway, that's my, how I escaped. Right, but so, you, so first of all, the first step was to train as a psychotherapist. Yeah. And, and, and run these nights, these scanners nights. Yeah. Uh, and then, in the, and this is for people, I'm sure there are a lot of people can relate to this, people who are very creative, start sorts of things, but, but not, not finishes of projects. Yeah. Right. And then, and then you say, and ended up with a book deal. That sounds easier than it. I'm sure it probably well, was. There is a, when people say, um, how do you get a book deal? What I often say to them is, uh, the best way is to attract one. So the people I know who got book deals, people came looking for them. And the reason why is because they had a presence in the space. So probably people listening here right now who fantasize about writing a book. And so this will be interesting for them. And what you need to do is get active in a space that you find interesting. And one of the um, themes of, of both my books, actually, is that um, sitting around thinking about what you want to do is not going to help. So that's the big error people make when they're trying to make career decisions. They sit and think, I mean, like, um, 
if they think if they think long enough that they're going to come up with a solution they you know, meditate in some bolt of lightning will hit them out of the sky and they'll go that's it i want to be a fireman of course why didn't i think of it before or something like that and it doesn't really work like that um if you sit around with no you know, that works for maths problems it doesn't work for anything else it's sitting and thinking without any new input without experiencing new things is not going to move you forward and um and generally it's like trying to imagine what kind of food you're going to enjoy eating you know would i like cauliflower i don't know i've never eaten cauliflower i don't know let me google what people think of cauliflower no just get some cauliflower and eat it and so that's basically um my uh, philosophy with people when they're trying to decide what to do you've got to experiment and do things and run projects so if you feel like running an event and uh, getting a certain kind of person together in a room who is like you, then do it. It's really very easy to do now. So that's one of the themes of my first book. It's like, have you not realized we can do anything now? We don't have to wait for a company. We don't have to, you don't have to wait for a publisher to give you a book deal or, a, you know, you don't have to wait for a radio station to hire you as a, as a talk show host. You can do this, what we're doing right now. Right. So, um, so the idea is go out and do things. And I did Scanners Night. I started writing a blog and I was coaching people, creative people on their careers. And what happened was a client of mine who went on to create a very successful uh, blog um, was talking to a publisher about a book deal for himself. And uh, the conversation came around to a concept of Scanners or he mentioned it because he'd been to Scanners Night and he was a client of mine. And they said, oh, we want a book about that. Would you put us in touch? And so that's how I got in touch with um, the commissioning editor at um, Pearson uh, at the time. She's now at Penguin Random House, and she also commissioned my second book as well. So, um, so yes, it's luck, but you can engineer your own luck. Mm. You know, if you go out and you, you're a big presence, someone will come to you, and this happens to lots of my peers. They're going out and they're active in a certain space, and eventually either an agent will come to you and go, hey, we should get you a book deal or a publisher themselves will come to you. And one of the big deciders on books, if, for those who are interested in books, is what publishers call your platform. So how much of a platform do you have? So having a podcast is a platform. Having an email list is a platform. Having a, if you're on TV or radio, it basically decides the size of your advance. So if you're a famous celebrity, if you're someone like Russell Brand, then your advance will be in six figures or seven figures, I don't know, um, probably six and, and if you're, you know, a huge celebrity in a Barack Obama decides to write a book, I think he is doing one at the moment, then um, another book, then he will get seven figures of arts or possibly even eight, I don't know. And it, it's just because he's so well known and he has such a big presence in the world. So we can all play that game of being more active in whatever space uh, we want to be known in. Okay. But then what about, and I've seen this as a criticism of your work, is what about if you're an introvert and you're not the type of person who's going to kind of create an event and invite a load of people to yeah. it or, or get out and, and publicize yourself. What about if you're in that class and you yeah. want to, well, either, either break free of a, of a mm. corporate job, if that's what you want to do or write a book or whatever it might be. Well, look, I don't think you need to be an extrovert at all. I think it's about very much about doing it your way. So um, I'm kind of halfway between introvert and extrovert. So a live event is good, but I don't really want to run. There are other things I wouldn't want to do. It wouldn't be fun for me. And um, for other people, like I've got a client who was a behavioral economist and he did a, a few of my courses and got the bravery to, to quit his job and go and do, he did remarkable things with um, 3D cutting machines, started making products for people. He makes props for big feature films now he's like a math geek so he he loves the computer modeling that's involved he's got i don't know quite how he did this but he has just a huge number of followers on twitter and uh he's connected with some of his heroes in fact he ended up interviewing cory doctorow the novelist um for a major newspaper i think for the economist possibly i'm not sure so all these bizarre things happened once he just started doing things out in the world, but his version was not to go and speak in front of an audience or to um, uh, or to go and try and uh, you know I don't know be a star in some way. His idea was to tweet things which are really really geeky and to get this massive geek following. He wrote a blog post which was about the maker movement, and he said basically this is why I'm so excited about 
um, it's, it's a new world. It's a little bit kind of what I'm writing about in my books. Like I don't need a job anymore. I can make stuff and I can sell it to people and I'm going to be a maker. And it was really impassioned. Um, but he would not want to give that as a talk. I don't think that would be fun for Tim. And that uh, blog post got him noticed by that led on to him doing the interview with Corey Doctorow and all sorts of other things. So you can do it in your own introvert way. You can be, you know, the super Excel geek. You can be whatever it is you're, you know, if I'm still passionate about broadcast technology, I could be blogging or doing something around, you know, media asset management, which is my area of speciality. Okay. And, and that ties into something else, which I know is in your work, which, which I actually got a lot out of. And that's this. So this idea of finding your own way that suits your personality and your characteristics. And I know something that you're, uh, you advocate is the wealth dynamics approach. Could you share yeah. a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, it's a personality profiling system. It's a little bit similar to Myers-Briggs, which quite a few people know, but it's designed for entrepreneurs and it's, um, it's just got eight different profiles and it helps you understand what kind of business would suit you or what role in the business would suit you. So there are, I mean, the categories are fairly similar to a lot of other personality profiling things, but there's stuff like I'm a creator and that's somebody who's, who's got lots of ideas, good at starting things, good at uh, creating products, not very good at anything else, not, not, doesn't really think about finance or planning or timelines or people. And then there are, there are, there's a classic people person, there's a classic branding person, um, there's a dealmaker person. Uh, and so on, all the way around, there's a square of eight different profiles, from introvert to extrovert, and from um, from uh, sort of uh, people who are into ideas and people who are into reality, the current reality and, um, and their senses. So I, I find that really useful because it. I think the thing that most people get out of personality profiling is that you realise that you don't have to be like other people. It's very easy to compare us and go... You know, I used to look at the programmers when I was a software developer and think like, yeah, there was a moment I remember when I was standing in front of this in the R&D department of Avid Technology was the company I worked for then. And, um, and thinking, you know, I'm never going to be one of these people. I'm not actually, first of all, I don't think I have the raw intelligence uh, of some of the people in this room who are literally geniuses. And uh, secondly, I don't have the brain for um, software to the level where, I could be like that where I could be like a world-class software developer, which is what they were. And they were doing special effects software, which is some of the toughest software in the world to write. It's really all about speed and algorithm and, and um, incredible things you have to do. Uh, and AI as well. And, um, uh, and I, I, that was that moment when I remember standing there and going, I'm never going to be one of these people. I'm, a, I'm an okay programmer. Okay to good, but then everyone thinks they're an okay to good driver, right? Have you seen that? Yeah, everyone thinks they're better than average driver. Well, you can't all be better than average. So I thought I was kind of maybe slightly over average programmer, which I suspect probably means I was bang on average, if not slightly under. So I did some things and I, I, I thought were quite good, but I thought, actually, that's okay. I'm okay with not being able to be as good as these, these people because that's actually not what I want anyway. I wanted something else. And then it began this long, long journey um, to find out what, what on earth that was and what it is actually is coming up with ideas and making them happen that's what the creative ideas but kind of business and product ideas that's what i do with clients and that's what i do with with my own projects it's what's fun for me and it's so it's, it's doing them yourself and helping others to realize them yeah so the, my company the ideas lab helps people turn their ideas into world-class businesses books and brands so whether you want to launch a product or a brand around a personal brand or a company brand or uh, or capture your ideas in a book that's really successful or form a whole new business that's what i help people do and that's what i find really exciting and really it's just, that's the kind of thing uh, there's a concept in screw a let's play i talk about where i say um when you get paid for what you do even if you didn't need the money then you're getting paid to play and so when i'm doing this stuff which is um coming up with ideas for people's businesses and how to name them and how to make them distinctive it's so much fun i would do that if i won the lottery tomorrow and had you know tens of millions of pounds i'd still be doing it in some form or other but now i actually get paid for it which is good the dream yeah yeah i mean right. it's, there's always nothing's ever perfect so there's always 
you know, there's stuff I have to do, which is, which is not in flow for me and not particularly fun. And, um, uh, and the aim, really the aim for me over the coming year is to find more people to take the things off me, which I don't enjoy doing planning, finance, hiring people. Those things are not enjoyable and I'm pretty, not really very good at them. Okay. And so if, if, but what, what if the world, and this was another criticism I saw of your work, what, what if everybody just did what they loved? You know, what about the mundane jobs? Surely they even need to get done. I mean, I, I, I have seen this argument. It's possibly true. Um, I mean, partly I would say that, you know, there are some people who like jobs that you, first of all, we imagine that everyone doesn't like a job that we don't like. That's not true. So we imagine that being a bookkeeper will be hellish or some people, you know, if you're a creative person, you imagine being a bookkeeper is hellish. I've met bookkeepers who love it. You know, they don't want to do anything else but rest numbers in, in an Excel spreadsheet. And they would not want to be doing what I do or what you do or all sorts of other things. So I think um, that is the case. Uh, the other thing is there's some jobs that need doing currently until technology can do them, which um, are just not, perhaps um, that enjoyable and people do them because they don't have much choice. I personally believe that's why I think we should treat people who don't have a lot of choice um, decently, you know, but uh, I'm not a libertarian for instance. So I don't believe that the market should just, you know, throw people aside and do whatever, whatever it will with people's lives because what will happen is people who have the, the least choice, you know, there is always going to be a lot of people working on tills, well for the time being at least, in um, supermarkets and so on, doing other kind of general customer service jobs where they get paid minimum wage. And I think we need a minimum wage. And I think we need regulations around employment so that those people don't have a horrible time where they can't take any holidays and that kind of stuff. Okay. And for those who, who aren't aware of that term, libertarian just means, you know, no government, basically. Is that, is that how you're... Yeah, it means like, well, we don't like paying tax and we let the market decide everything. And quite why you think that the, um, the market deciding everything would be a good idea is, is, you know, to a certain extent, that is capitalism, right? But, but the market decides a lot of things that, to a certain extent. I think it works. But if you, if you leave it completely unconstrained, then people's lives just get destroyed in the process, it seems to me. Right. Uh, but libertarians might argue, well, we've never actually tried that, right? Yeah, right. But people also, uh, on the opposite side of the political spectrum, will say, say we've never tried pure communism. Let's give it another crack. But every time we've, we've done it, it's not turned out very well. So probably a reason no one's, no one's actually done it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, okay. So coming back to your ideas lab, and I, so what I understand from that is you, you do work with entrepreneurs, and they will, I'm sure there will be a section of the people listening who are the, either they are an entrepreneur they would like to be um a lot of people work in jobs and you you talk about the best employee is not a worker but a player so yeah, yeah. expand on that yeah i think i mean sometimes you need people who just follow the rules but i think sometimes the most valuable employee you can have is actually uh, a player not a worker that means they are at least partially driven by internal motivation they're not just following orders they are driven because they believe in what you've asked them to do. They believe in what the company is doing. They enjoy what they're doing. It suits them. And they have some nous about, um, about how they approach things. It's a very English word. But uh, I thought of calling a book that at one point, but I don't think most people know what it means uh, outside the UK. So just common sense and initiative. So uh, that's what we want from people quite often so um when you ask them to do something they don't just do it in this sort of minimum basic way they do like well, what's the best way of doing this and how can i get it done quickly so i don't get on to something else and that's the kind of that's what you want an employee to do really and do something really well and to get on and, and move through their workload quickly and that's what i think a player does because they will say well what if i actually take time out and while my boss is telling me I should just tweak, I remember when I was a software developer, he, they'd always say, well, can you add this new feature to the program? And what I did is I started developing a whole new branch of the software um, without telling them. And then eventually said, hey, I've written a new version. Should we just release this? And they went, oh, yeah, let's do that. But they wouldn't let me do that because they, 
they had this list of features they wanted and they felt like that was a waste of time to start a new version, all this kind of stuff. So, but I just did the right thing because it was the right thing to do. So that's what I'm talking about uh, as a player. It's also somebody who's more flexible and more agile. So in the old days, you wanted somebody who just followed orders. Um, but that doesn't really work too well anymore because things are moving so fast. A lot of companies complain that their staff are not uh, agile in their thinking or the organization's not agile. And that's a, that's a big problem when in six months' time, the, the industry you're in could look completely and utterly different. Hmm. So if I'm a CEO listening to this and I, I want more players and less workers and I don't mm-hmm. want them to run off and join one of your courses and you know, start the, the job of their dreams, but work in my company and, mm-hmm. and, and be an effective player in my company, what's, what's your advice to them? Well, you've got to make sure that you're creating jobs that give a certain level of autonomy um, and allow people to choose how they do things and maybe give them a little bit of flexibility of working you know, of hours, of location, um, give them flexibility of how they do something. As long as they get something done, that's more important. And um, make sure that you're creating a, you're getting a person that really suits the job. That's obviously what everyone's trying to do. But, you know, sometimes, weirdly, uh, people will lie in an interview to get a job that doesn't suit them. (laughs) And you you have to get rid of them. Uh, And what you want is somebody where they're, um, unique ability, as some people call it, it, it perfectly sits, it perfectly suits the thing that you want them to do. And uh, but it does mean that you've got to loosen their shackles a little bit and give a bit more flexibility and, and um, a longer lead uh, for what people want to do. And it also means, actually, don't be worried about people like me because I there's that example of Pamela Slim who does a similar thing to me in America and the book is called something like escape the cubicle cage and Google invited her in and she opened her talk. I watched her talk at Google. They've had all sorts of fascinating, they've had Dave Allen as well. Um, Previous guest on being Yeah. And, um, I watched, um, her talk and she says, you know, when I, when I got invited by Google to come in and talk to that, talk to the staff here, I kind of wonder why they're doing it. It felt like I was, that would be the equivalent of me inviting my husband to spend the weekend with Selma Hayek. I mean, like, that would be insane. So, um, because her job is all about helping people leave the cubicle cage. But then she said she realized that everyone knows that people are going to work at Google not for their entire lives. It's very unlikely. They're going to move on. A lot of them want to start their own business. They want to exit and run a startup. And so why pretend that that's not the case and try and lock people down and, you know, keep them in the dark so that they stay as long as possible instead of that invite people in, in to give really inspiring talks about entrepreneurship make sure that when they leave they leave in an ordered way and then maybe that is more likely their startups going to succeed and quite often google go and invest in those things afterwards or buy them out so you can you know if you know people are millennials are only going to stay two years anyway you might as well just like you know why not actually talk to them about how they're going to leave and what that's going to look like it reminds me of, uh, so when I was at Deloitte, you know, uh, where we both worked, uh, they invited in a speaker. So she was the sister of a brother-sister team duo who set up Costa Coffee, which is a big um, coffee chain in the UK. I'm not sure internationally whether Costa mm-hmm. Coffee exists. And her message was, you know, leap and the net will appear. I so you could just... <laughs> really? Well, the whole cry thing. Should we quit? And, uh, and in fact, not too many years later, I did exactly that. Um, I think that, well, I don't think the net will appear unless you build it. I think I prefer that quote. I think it's a Ray Bradbury quote quote of, um, we must jump off cliffs and build our wings on the way down or something like that. So that at least has some self-agency in it. Yeah, you have to build the wings. And um, I recommend people, if we're talking about people quitting their jobs, don't do it until uh, they at least know what they're going to do. So it's a really bad, this generally goes very badly. If people quit their job, like they, maybe they get some redundancy payment or something like that, or they manage to get a payoff, and then they start wondering what to do. That never goes well, I can tell you. Almost never. They basically burn through their cash, and then they go back into the same kind of job they had before with pretty much no insight. Because what they do is they sit there and they, 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 they see their savings going down while they're trying to do blue sky thinking about what they want to do with life. And then often they sit around and think and read books rather than Google things, rather than actually try things, which is what I, re- I recommend people run what I call them play projects 
Like what's something you want to do for the sake of doing it? And you feel that would be really rewarding. And you don't even know where the money's going to go. And there are loads of examples of my clients where we've got them to do that. It's, and it's led, you know, in the same way that Scanners Night led to my book deal and that led to all sorts of things. You know, it's training as a psychotherapist led to, you know, informed a lot of my work as a coach, even though I didn't expect that at the time. And um, lots of my clients have done funny little projects that have just gone off. Uh, a woman did a really great um, blog about actually the death of her mother and, her, and the humor in that actually was the humor in the, in the, in the darkness. And uh, she ended up, that, that ended up connecting with all sorts of charities, getting loads of accolades. And then that kind of inspired her to go and create something which is a walking tour of for foodies in Brighton, which has got loads of press since then. So, yeah, completely unrelated. So that's, we think that's the thing that happens. If you go and do something you're excited about, then it puts you it out there with a kind of, it gets you creative, but also with the right energy. And if you, it starts to sound a bit woo-woo now, but if you're out in the world meeting people and you look like you're having fun, you know, who doesn't want to be around people like that? Hmm. So that's actually part of why, why you want to hire people, why, you know, you'd want to follow people. So do, do get in action with something that has you. That <clears throat> yeah. Get in action with something. And when, when I talk about a 30 day play project, I used to run this course, the, the 30 day challenge, uh, which we ran 10 times over 1300 people took it. And it was to come up with a project that required you to output something to the world within 30 days. So people would do um, a blog or they'd uh, run a live event. So one of my, um, uh, one of the people on there, Sarah Wheeler started a comedy night. And on the 30th day, it, right at the end, she started this comedy night, which was really good. I and mean, she had really good people on and she's funny too. She does, um, uh, comedy music she's now evolved she, that night is still running it's called um rye laughs because it's in peckham rye in london and that's evolved onto her teaching ukulele to people like google and then that that evolved into her teaching you know female founders about uh running your own business and then she just did a a comedy song believe it or not about gdpr the new eu privacy regulations that's gone viral she's on the radio today in fact one of the bbc local radio stations talking about it because everyone's been sharing it because um you know we're talking today on the, on the day it comes into force so uh, you know a random project like that turns into an entire business and new career for her you know everyone probably seems, thinks this sounds very pie in the sky but <laughs> these things really happen and they do turn into like another client um did a thing in 30 days she wanted to be a photographer and um because she, she read my book and it said, you know, basically don't just, don't just do anything. Don't just kind of take any work that's coming. Define yourself. Choose a, uh, a super niche, I call it, in the second book. And um, she said, okay, well, what do I feel most strongly about? I feel about uh, dating profile photos. So uh, what I'm going to do is set myself as, up as the world's first dating profile photography business, which she called Hey Saturday. And she did that and she looked for her first client within this 30 day challenge community, we had a couple of hundred people on it at the time and she found somebody who volunteered to have photos taken for a dating profile, like a, like Tinder or whatever. And that person then recommended, she liked Saskia so much who'd started this business, uh, recommended her, her first paid client. And now Saskia has uh, photographers working under her in multiple cities in the UK. I think there's about 10 of them. Um, it's actually like a proper business. She's also set up in New York. So this is, and she's been in every press, uh, every publication you can imagine. Early this year, she was on the front page of BBC News uh, with the story of her business. So these little quirky projects turn into serious businesses, particularly creative businesses, but even conventional ones. You know, you can, you do something, um, just for the fun of it and you meet somebody and they give you a, a job in or a, or a contract or something. It reminds me of, uh, of something that, that a guy called Dave, professor Dave Snowden talks about. He's a complexity mm. thinker and he's actually coming up mm. on the podcast and he has this idea that if we're working in, in, in the complex realm and of course entrepreneurs setting up businesses are working in complexity, but also large businesses are operating in a, in a complex realm. He talks about this idea of a, a, obliquity. 
So this mm. idea that if you're heading towards some goal, it's not always mm. the best strategy to, to, to tackle it head on yeah. and think your way through what a direct group might be. Sometimes a more successful culture is to probe and experiment with something that may feel oblique to, to what it is you're ultimately yeah. trying to achieve. That seems to resonate with what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. And I think because I think the education system is the problem and it's taught us to think in a very uh, linear way and, you know, only put your hand up if you think you know the answer and all that kind of stuff. And no, basically when you put your hand up, the answer is generally either right or wrong at school, maybe until you get to university. And so there's only a yes or a no. And with jobs as well, there's only a yes or no. Did you get the job or not? I didn't get the job. I didn't get the interview or whatever it is. There's no gray area generally. But when you get into entrepreneurship, everything's a gray area. And uh, it's a kind of high thinking of, you know, chaos versus order. Entrepreneurship, there's there's a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of um, kind of chaos in your day-to-day life, uh, you know, of just things coming at you and, um, and it's, it's, it's something that the education system prepares you for very poorly. So we think that, you know, you're either going to make the business work or it doesn't, but that's not true. If you decide that you are going to make that business work, even if, you know, whatever it takes, then generally, as long as you're willing to adapt what the business is and what flavor, what shape it takes and what flavor it is, you can almost certainly make it work in the end. Whether you'll end up a billionaire is, is another matter. So, you know, there's a kind of, pass or fail on, um, on, you know, do you become a kind of viral growth startup? That's a different thing. But if you just want to like have a really good career uh, as an independent consultant, or you want to start a business, which is maybe an agency, or maybe it's, I don't know what it is, uh, something more creative of the kind I've spoken about. There isn't a yes or no. There's just like, you just keep at it and you keep, you respond to feedback and you change your course accordingly. There's a cartoon that you see get, do the rounds on social media quite, quite a lot, which I believe goes back to Dimitri Martin, who's a stand-up comic. And um, it says, you know, this is what people think success looks like. And it's like A's here, B's there, and it's a straight line in between. And he says what success really looks like. And there's A and B and just this giant squiggly mess in between. And that's entrepreneurship. And that's actually the most interesting and creative careers are of that shape as well. I mean, if you want to be a neurosurgeon, it's more a straight line. You've got to study and you've got to, there's a certain way of getting in there. But for other things where you're, you're moving more organically through the process, and you, you don't know where your career is going to go until you've got to the next step. So you get to this point on your journey and the view is different from what it was before. And now there's options you hadn't even thought of and now you're firing off in a different direction because that feels right and feels more exciting than what you originally planned. So that's a whole different way of thinking about careers and work that, um, unfortunately, the, uh, what I say in, in my second book, Screw Up, Break Free, is that the education system trains us to be worker bots. Unfortunately, it really does, even today, kind of make us passive uh, people who are designed to follow instructions. There isn't, and even from what I, I don't have children, but from what I gather of the education system today, still not actually that radically different. There's very, if there's a little bit of creative thinking, it's kind of, you know, a little kind of sprinkle on top of what is otherwise a sit down, shut up and do what you're told kind of establishment. And, um, uh, and, and that's a shame because I think it's not going to work in the future with the way Technology is going to take the menial stuff away from us. So what you need more than anything is to be able to be be creative, be caring, and to collaborate. So three C's apparently that um, robots still quite bad at. Oh, okay. That's the, that? way we, that's the way we escape the replacement. So be, be yeah. creative, be caring. Yeah, be and collaborative. So those are the three things that AI and robots are quite bad at doing. Um, they're not good at being creative at all. They're not very good at being caring. <laughs> and they'll get there eventually. They'll be able to simulate caring, and actually, it'll probably work because you press the right buttons in the human psyche, and it probably feels right. So I'm, I'm a bit cynical like that. And then, but the um, and collaborating in terms of you know what happens when two people put their heads together and try and do something together. You know, some kind of magic occurs. It doesn't happen between two instances of the same program. So uh, those are the things that we need to be focusing on. And, and you know, we're looking at things like. 
there are, um, I forget how many, but there are millions of people employed in jobs like uh, driving, uh, driving and trucking uh, around the world. A huge proportion of people are employed in driving people in cabs or in um, lorries, delivering things, uh, or courier firms, and all of those things, and all the all the businesses that support those with replacement parts, and also um, you know give them food and all those kind of things, and help them fill up petrol. All those jobs are going to disappear really soon because autonomous vehicles are coming, and they're really just around the really pretty close now, a few years away. And once those come in, we'll see like 100% unemployment immediately for all those people who are drivers. Now, I mean, okay, it won't be immediate because it will be a staged thing. But, you know, he's Uber sucking the world's private hire um, employees into their ecosystem. And then they're already building their own autonomous vehicles in order that they can make them all unemployed. Now, that's, that's actually the nature of a startup. That's the nature of capitalism. So it's nothing evil particularly about that. But we need to realize that this is going to happen. This is, and and um, driving is, is uh, you know, there are, probably aren't many people listen to this who make a living out of driving, but, um, but it's moving up the scale as well. And we're seeing outsourcing for uh, medical things, for legal stuff. For actuaries, account. I heard, you know, actuaries are, are on the list. Yeah, right. stuff that previously was very, a certified profession. Right, very high IQ work as well as, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and IBM Watson does quite a good job on legal research already. So these things are, are coming along. And if, you, if your job is easily definable and replicable, um, then you're in trouble. Right. But even, even the creative part, right? And God, I didn't expect this podcast to go quite so gloomy. But <laughs> right? I mean, there are, isn't there AI that created symphonies now that people can't distinguish from actual symphonies? Yeah, so yeah I mean, possibly. Part. I do think, I don't think you should underestimate technology. I think it may get that way. And I do, like I say, I do think that you press the right buttons on the human psyche and you will get the response you want to, to make you feel good. And there will be, there'll come a point when people will have robot companions and make them feel less lonely, for instance. So, um, and yes, there will be things like symphonies written by software. Um, I'm not too worried about that. I think people will still value. Well, what will happen is we've already seen a massive shift in lots of industries like the music industry to the point where it's really almost impossible to make money out of selling music itself and so what happened was the entire industry split where it used to be that you put on gigs in order to promote the music sales and now you do music sales in order to promote the gigs and the gigs become more and more elaborate experiences and we're paying money to go you know the festivals are huge in the uk uh there's loads of them and people are paying you know a lot of money to go to a festival because they want an experience so there's no um, there's no alternative for that anymore. The value of information is dropping, but the value of an experience is, if anything, increasing. Mm, a human-led experience, right? Uh, there prob- yeah. well, there'll probably always be a difference be- between a, a robot singing and, a, and another human being, or at least for, a, so. for a while. That's going to be. <laughs> You've got a while. <laughs> You've got a while. That's all I'm willing to commit to. <laughs> right. Well, talking about human experiences, so I was... I was touched that in your yes, in your your first book you talk about um, the the death of your father very early and that I know this is a bit of a career you know a gear shift now but um, given that this this podcast is about being human and going a bit deeper so how do you think that's informed your work that early loss and 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 do you did you open and share about that a lot in your work. I think it informs everything. So I, I think it makes me very uh, conscious that you don't know how long you've got to live. And I think a lot of people, I noticed when I, when I was growing up, you'd ask people and you go like, you know, how do you imagine you die? Or you mentioned how, you know, what would be the best way to die? And, and you get this sort of dreamy feel, look come over people's faces where they go, oh, you know, I'll be 80 something years old, lying in bed next to my partner who now has the delight of, waking up next to a dead person but anyway we'll brush over that and um uh and you know i die in my sleep or you know maybe you die both in your sleep at the same time or something holding hands yeah holding hands yes and um uh, and, and you just go like well i hope that does happen i hope that version does pan out but it could be next week 
So, and for me, if that's always been that, that idea that you would, uh, by default, live to 80 and die in your sleep, um, would be, uh, was clearly, uh, you know, made to be nonsense by the death of my father when he was 34. So, how old? Six months old. So I think it, what it's done is it's made me, that's partly what informs the, my um, uh, determination as, a, as an entrepreneur. This is a determination not to have a job because I, I never found jobs very uh, satisfying. And it's just a feeling, and I do often think, um, you know, if this was, okay, if I died next year, what would, would this be the right stuff to be doing for the next year? And, and I do think on those things, and I think it's a very good thing to assess uh, because you can be very successful outwardly and still not feel like that was, that was a life well spent. So I'm always asking myself and pondering that, and I think that's a good thing to do. Mm. So, so it gave you this, uh, yeah, I can, I can see how that's given you a, a keener appreciation of life and a desire to, mm. to make the most of it. What about the, the absence of a father? Well, uh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know what it's like to have a father. So I think, yeah, we probably did, yeah, well, it did have an impact. Um, I, actually, funny enough, there's, um, I think there's some research people who lose parents young and they're often quite driven. Eddie Izzard talks about that and uh, uh, a few other people. So, so there, there might be something in that. I think also um, I have a probably equally significant is that I have a, a condition my pituitary gland doesn't work. It's quite complicated. It's like having diabetes times four. And that caused, a, it meant that early on from the age of four, I was getting a lot of, um, uh, a lot of interaction with the medical system, which was very upsetting for a four-year-old. And, um, and that probably had a, a bigger effect. Well, as big an effect on me as losing my father. And, um, and I think that's also given me, it's given me my dark sense of humor. You'll notice people, patients uh, always have the darkest sense of humor. And uh, so that, that's definitely why I have this kind of uh, politically incorrect, will go anywhere kind of uh, mindset and, and humor. And it also means that because I've experienced some very unpleasant things, part as a result of medical stuff and my, uh, and my dad dying, it means that um, I'm a bit uh, deeper and, there's nowhere I won't go. Like when I'm working with a client and we're talking about something and how to market them and how to present it. And often these are people who are using their knowledge and they're trying to, and their skills and they're trying to make the world a better place quite often. There's, there's nowhere I won't go in that discussion. It's like if we need to talk about death and disability and disease or making a shitload of money, whatever it is, it's like nothing is taboo for me. Isn't that interesting how in the UK making a shitload of money might be having this podcast in America, that would be. Yeah. In America, why could that be a problem? So I've considered a little bit or marketing or, or whatever. And I still have my sense of ethics about what's right and what's wrong to do in the world. So if somebody is completely, you know, unpracticed, like, you know, I believe in science, for instance. So somebody has some harebrained idea and wants to persuade people to not take, um, you know, uh, something that's going to save their life and, and take something that's completely untested uh, as an alternative medicine. And I'm very cautious about that. I am interested in alternative medicine, but I don't just support anybody, whatever they're doing. So, uh, so I still have a sense of ethics about what people are doing and whether I want to support them in it. You know, I don't have any clients who are racist and are trying to do anything I would disapprove of, but I feel will make the world a worse place. Um, but aside from that, anything's open for discussion. And I think that's part of the reason why people like working with me, particularly one-to-one in my groups, because um, you, can, you can say anything and you can, you can do anything. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I like that. So you're a coach. Who, who, who has inspired you or coached you and helped you be the coach that, that you are? Um, oh, lots of people. I've read loads of books. I've also as very inspired well, very early on, actually, when I first got into psychotherapy um, and counseling and having it myself, because that was a big, um, big shift when I was younger. Uh, I was really into Carl Rogers. So he was a guy in the 1950s who uh, pioneered counseling and he believed in doing uh, actual scientific research on, on counseling and therapy and what works. 
and um, uh, which a lot of therapy therapists don't do. And so that was very interesting. So he had real research data that he could draw on. And he came up with these principles of um, what he called the person-centered approach. And the three qualities were congruence, I'm not going to remember that, um, congruence, unconditional positive regard, and I can't remember, was it empathy? I don't know. But the one I really liked was the idea that you could be congruent. And what that meant is you're authentic. You are, what, what you are on the inside is what you are on the outside. And so we're talking about these as qualities of a, a therapist or counsellor. However, it was a, I'd grown up thinking that I should hide all sorts of aspects of myself in a typical English family, perhaps. Um, one that was particularly prone to that. And it was a revelation to realise that it, somebody was saying it might be a good and healthy thing and beneficial for other people for you to actually say what's going on inside you and to share that with people. I, mean, um, I was once described as pathologically English, so I can... Oh, really? Oh, wow, okay. Well, there's hope for it. Yeah. And so Carl Rogers was like a revelation for that. And then I read a book called Families and How to Survive Them by John Cleese and Robin Skinner, which I thought was fantastic. And then um, actual coaches. I was a big fan of Barbara Scher, who invented the term scanners. She wrote a lot of books about that, and she inspired me in my work. Barbara Winter's book was great. Um, uh, how to, what's it called? Um, Make a Living Without a Job. Um, and then I went on to probably a lot when I became an entrepreneur, you know, I followed Roger Hamilton, uh, Daniel Wagner. And Robert know, Hamilton is the guy who developed wealth dynamics. Right? Roger Hamilton. Yeah. was the wealth mm. dynamics guy and, uh, Daniel Wagner, who's a marketing coach. Um, and, uh, and I love the story from your book about Daniel Wagner. And he, and the dog, yeah, the dog, the dog uh, right? Yeah. You, you yeah. could go on, share it, share it. Oh God, I've forgotten that. Yes. Um, when he was, he wanted to get into internet marketing and, uh, he decided to do something around dogs because he's the people who have pets spend an awful lot of money on them. So he created a, a, a webpage where all it said is what's your number one problem with your dog right now. And then when they filled it in, it said you would, you would then get, um, a kind of ebook that was going to help you with look after your dog or something like that. And uh, so people will put all this information in and say what their number one problem was with their dog. And then what he did was he took this list of questions, sent it to an outsourcing company and said, can you write answers to what research and write answers to this? This does sound slightly unethical, but anyway, uh, to these questions and somebody researched them all and wrote them. And then he put it together and he sold that thing for, whatever the fee was at the time. And that made him a significant amount of money initially. And so he, uh, he thought, well, you know, there's really something in this online, <laughs> online marketing stuff. Uh, but what the point I was making is that the power of knowing the problem. And I talk a lot about this when I work with clients. Um, like if you, what, what, if you can tune into the head of, of uh, your target customer and really understand what's on their mind uh, enter the conversation already going on in their head is the is a quote from Robert Collier, I believe, uh, from the advertising world. When you know that, you can make stuff that really works. So it doesn't have to be a random guess whether your business is going to succeed or fail. You can find out. You ask your target customer. It's a radical technique. But uh, people often miss doing it because they get so in love with their idea, they don't go through that process. But the extreme version of that was Daniel, who didn't even know about dogs, doesn't even like dogs, and managed to create a product that made tens of thousands of pounds, can't remember how much it was, just by doing that research of, of saying, what is your pain point? Right. And I would, I would argue ethical in the end, because he helped a lot of people with their... I think so, yeah. Their dogs, right? Assuming the advice was good by, by you know, <laughs> it's, 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 one dollar an hour research. And, yeah, how did and he validate that, that what it <laughs> produced was valid if he doesn't have a dog? But, yeah. Yeah. No, the... the, the but I, I, and I totally relate to it because I certainly when I put myself in that position of asking customers, you know, what's your problem or what do you mm. really need? There's that fear that, oh God, what if they say something that isn't something I can do yeah. or. Well, I heard I'm, Mike Southern once who wrote the book. Um, I was, I met him in Bali at one of Roger's events mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Mike Southern wrote the book, The BMW Entrepreneur, which is a big hit. And there was a series of books after that as well. And he said, you go and ask your customer and you do a piece of work for them. And then afterwards you go, what, what, what's your biggest problem now? And if they go, well, oh, I wish we could get someone to clean these carpets. He goes, now you're in the carpet cleaning business. 
<laughs> and, now, ultimately, you can decide whether you take the job that um, that that is. You don't have to take every job your your target customer has. The idea is to find the problem that they have in your particular area. However, you know you can be flexible about it. Sometimes people are so tight about it. Maybe if you're really well connected to all sorts of suppliers and you can get a carpet cleaning person in, or you decide you discover that. 70% of your customers for some reason have a problem with their carpets. Might be worth setting up a carpet cleaning business on the side or as part of what you do. You know, that's an extreme example. But it, as a consultant, you might find that everyone wants graphic design. Everyone wants presentation skills. You don't currently offer it. But you can add that into what you do. If everyone asks for it, then you'd be a bit of a muppet not to listen to it. Muppet for non-English <laughs> UK speakers means... <laughs> What, idiot, fool. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, you know, that, that, makes, that makes sense. I, I'm just relating as well to the way I see that is that I get, I get so attached to my own ego, you know, all these are the things I'm skillful at. That it's like I, I feel some safety yeah. in that and scared of... Oh, well, it is. No, that is, is an ego. And people go, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm the high concept guy. I'm, I'm trying to find your big mission for your company. And actually, um, well, the phrase I use is, sell what they want and deliver what they need. So often there's a mismatch between what people think is the problem and what is actually the problem. So I run a, a thing called the Pioneer Program to help people create a, a unique business and brand that has basically no competition because you're the only person who does that. And um, and it's great fun for me to run and it's it's, it's really exciting running at the moment. But the, um, the interesting thing is people will come into that thinking what they need is uh, a better social media strategy, or they think they need um, a branding consultant, as in what they think is branding is design, uh, which is not what I get involved in at all. Or they think they need uh, a trick to get more traffic to their website. And then you look at the website and you go, well, you don't want more traffic to your website. It looks bloody awful. First of but secondly, you know, there's nothing for people to buy. There's no um, call to action. It's really not clear what you're doing. You've described it really badly. And, um, you know, your photo looks scruffy. So <laughs> these, are, these are examples of real clients, actually. And, they, um, and so you think, well, actually, what we're going to do is fix the proposition first. So a lot of work, work I'm doing is fixing that what is this thing you're selling? Everyone thinks the solution is better marketing. But if you have a really, really compelling proposition, you'll find that um, you don't have to do as much marketing. So um, what's his name? Um, I think it was Robert, somebody who founded um, Geek Squad, this IT, you know, fixer computer company. He says, marketing is a tax you pay for being unremarkable. So if you're, yeah, if you look like everybody else, you'll have to do more and more marketing. And what's happening is, if you're anyone like, if you're like me on Facebook, you're probably because of the nature of my business. My entire feed is full of uh, marketing gurus and adverts, you know, relentless adverts about how to market yourself. And, um, the problem with that thing of going down the marketing rabbit hole of becoming a better and better marketer when actually what you want to be as a practitioner or you want to be a company that does, you know, something different is that it never ends. And actually you might be better off putting the time and effort and even money into making your proposition really remarkable rather than becoming the world, a world-class marketer. So if you have, if you have a completely bland generic product, then you will have to be a world-class marketer to make it sell. And you can do that. And actually, if you love marketing more than anything else and you're a total marketing geek, that can work for you. But for the people who aren't, which is most of us, you'd much rather be doing the thing you want to do. So um, that's why I'm more interested in what is your actual business about and how are you distinctive. I love that. Marketing is a tax you pay on yeah. a remarkable proposition. That is... I mean, look at Tesla, right? They made a rem- you know all their products are remarkable um and so yes they don't actually spend an awful lot of money on advertising i don't think they run events they're not stupid they have big announcements and they have you know a pre-order thing and they uh and they they know how to they know how to play the marketing game clearly but they're not spending a lot of money on advertising you know adverts on on billboards and stuff like that or tv spots or which are incredibly expensive because the product itself is just so incredible Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really struck a chord. And that's what you, and okay. So I can see how you really help individual entrepreneurs with that. And how would you help larger businesses with around that same principles, presumably? 
I think some of what I do when I go in and consult on businesses is is um, is talk about the, the the way to approach the creative process and to bring in some of my thinking into an organisation that might not be used to thinking like that uh, to understand what the creative process does mean does require that you get comfortable with not having the answer. You kind of you have to get comfortable with not being comfortable. So I, um, I consult on some of that. Uh, sometimes I, I stray into with startups working in the area of, of, um, of branding and, and uh, also making sure the proposition works in a startup. So does this actually, have you created a startup that uh, I spoke to one and they say, well, you know, well, we can be used for lots of different things. I said, well, unless you have um, a killer use case, I think you're going to struggle. So a, a use case is like one particular way you use a, a piece of software. And um, if you think of Facebook, when it first started, the killer use case was you could find out who was single at college and send them a message. And that, that, was, that was reason for being on Facebook alone. And then when it broadened out, the killer use case was photos. You put photos on Facebook and everyone can share them instead of them just being on your computer and no one sees them. Now you, everyone can see your photos from your holiday and see how good you look in a, in a swimsuit or whatever. And that became a killer use case. So you've got to find these things that, uh, particularly in the early stages, where there is one thing that you, actually it's very relevant for software, it's also relevant for services. There's one thing that you are just brilliant at and that's often the thing people recommend you to others for. Same thing happens if you're a consultant or you run an agency or something like that, some kind of service industry. What's the, what's the one thing where you are just absolutely brilliant at, you love doing it, and people really, really value it? And you can build, um, you can build a, a, a traction around just that one thing, and then you can always scale up from there and broaden afterwards. Peter Thiel says, start, start by dominating, I forget the exact wording, start by dominating a very small niche and then scale up to your bigger vision from there. And he's a guy who, he founded PayPal with uh, Elon Musk and he also was the first ever external investor in Facebook. He's a multi, multi-billionaire. He's not another multi-billion dollar company, Palantir. And, um, and so even though he's only interested in billion dollar companies, he still says you need to start small. So PayPal when it started, uh, went for the eBay power sellers, which was a group of just 25,000 people. So they, they thought if we can get them, they have the biggest need for an online payment system. It's going to be a lot easier to get through to them. And it is to get through to the general public who are very, very wary and they don't want to put their credit card online and all that kind of stuff. So they, they, closed all the power sellers, made a really compelling offer to them, and then it grew from there. With Facebook, you had to be, you had to have, had to have a harvard.edu email address just to join Facebook in its first incarnation. And then after that, you had to be in other colleges, and then eventually it went public. And um, if they hadn't done that, they wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. They wouldn't have stood up to MySpace and Friendster or whatever else was around at the time. And, and I think that... <clears throat> Well, certainly from my perspective, I reflect on that. The reason I, I resist being so clear and singular in terms of what I'm mm. offering is I'm, I'm scared. Yeah, but, but, but what if people don't like that thing? Yeah, and, yeah. And then as soon as something else that comes slightly adjacent, yeah. I'm like, oh, well, I better get that in case I don't yeah. sell enough of the main thing, right? That's yeah, so where my brain can go in that. I know, and, it, and this is what everybody does, and it's kind of scarcity thinking versus abundance thinking. That's what the woo-woo people say. But they, if you think of Saskia Nelson, who started the dating profile photography business, and how much press she's got. I mean, there isn't a magazine she hasn't been in, or a newspaper, or, and she's been on TV and radio as well. <clears throat> and if she had said what most people do when they want to become a photographer is, I'm Saskia, I'm a photographer, I will photograph you, your dog, your business, your product, your wedding, anything, please hire me. How much of that press would she have got? Zero. So it's often by zooming down and be making a really strong statement that you become, uh, that you dominate a niche. And in fact, there's this concept from, uh, that I like. If you make this niche small enough, what you do is, as Saskia did, was to, um, create a new category. So instead of being yet another photographer, 
freelance photographer. You create an entire new category, which is the dating profile photographer. And in fact, she now has competitors. None of them are doing as well as her because when you become number one in your category, when you create a category, you're immediately number one in it. And when you do that, everyone else has to play catch up. And generally, unless you drop the ball, they never do catch up. And what happens, um, uh, particularly today, is that the market leader tends to get 80 to 90% of the business because they are the default, you know, in the same way that for a long time, it's probably not the case anymore, but, you know, Hoover was the name for a vacuum cleaner. And so the default purchase was, was to go to Hoover. And, um, uh, and you could, that's what category creation does. And that can, that's a really powerful thing to do. Makes, makes a lot of sense. God, I'm learning much more than I expected. Not, not. <laughs> that sounds awful. I always expect. No, 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 I know, I know, I know. I probably was waffling at the beginning. You should just cut all that stuff. <laughs> it all goes in as live podcasting. Yeah, great. Well, my, the final question I'm going to ask, and this is, I ask all my guests, is of course, John Williams. To you, what does it mean to be human? Um. Well, I think, yeah, see, you were talk- we were talking about this earlier before we, um, uh, on email. And uh, what it makes me think of is, um, is compassion, actually. I think the world is becoming less human. As the AI becomes more like a human, I'm noticing that humans becoming more like an AI. To the point where I'm speaking to people on the phone, it's so obvious they're following a script. I just go like, we might as well just switch you out for a computer right now. Because if you don't have any humanity about you, no compassion for the fact that I'm having a crappy customer experience, what is the point of you being there? You're just cheaper than the software right now. And, um, and I suppose what I'm doing, when I thought of all the different areas I'm interested in, which are very diverse, I'm interested in technology and in people helping others have a better life. And I'm interested in reforming the NHS because I had quite a bad experience when I was younger. And the common theme is uh, making it more humane. And uh, to my mind, what that means is, uh, is to have more compassion. So technology that's written by developers who don't have any kind of uh, empathy for the user, it's just infuriating to use and unnecessarily complicated PayPal as well, actually, if, as, the vendor, as the vendor side is really, really irritating to use. And there are lots of pieces of software like that where you just think like, oh, if you, do, if you just gave a crap, this could be so much better. And that to me is what being a human is about. It's about, um, it's about actually caring about the other person. So creating technology that actually cares what the user experience is like, creating businesses that care about what the user experience is like, and creating uh, a world where we care, you know, what people's life is like. So for me, that's what I'm really interested in, I don't know if that quite answers your question, but I think it is about um, uh, having that compassion that technology can't yet do. Thank you. Beautiful mm. answer, John. Yeah. Finally, for, uh, for those who want to engage with you, mm. be you an individual entrepreneur out there or, or a business, where, where do they go? Where do they find you? If you go to the ideaslab.org, so that's theideaslab.org and join at the bottom. There's a thing to join the email list and you can join that. And uh, I'm also starting my own podcast called the ideas lab, all about turning ideas into books, brands, and businesses. And um, I'm also doing quite an interesting project coming up, which is completely different. We should talk about this actually called the love challenge. So I'm going to create a whole new course in a different area. that's nothing to do with products and businesses and books, but it's about um, dating, love and relationships. And uh, the idea is that I'm going to learn in the creation of this thing because this is an area that I do not feel like expert in, I'm going to say, Richard. And um, so as I'm learning and I'm creating this course, it's going to run in November of 2018. I'm also going to share what I'm doing to build what is effectively a business from scratch. So if you're interested in watching me build a business in public and probably make a complete fool of myself and learn something about dating relationships while I'm doing it, because that's the... That's the subject matter of the business. So, so you and, will be data, uh, dating through this experiment. That is one of the things. Yes. So I'm already Saskia is one of our experts. The date. So she's going to do some dating profile photos. We're going to video the photo shoot. This is going to be incredibly embarrassing. But it's for men and women of all ages, 
and um, we're going to run one of these online experiences where hopefully we'll and there will there will be other men on the platform other than you, Joe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Actually, a friend of mine created a dating platform called uh, he's called Shared, and he created a dating a dating app called Shinder, and uh, the only man on it was Shared, <laughs> and you could just choose whether to date or not Shared, and uh, that got him a massive amount of press. He's a guy who knows how to get PR. But no, that's not how it works in the, in the Love Challenge. It's going to be men and women learning primarily about, you know, if dating seems to be a bit broken. I was discussing this with someone this morning who might be working with me on it. And, um, you know, is Tinder really working? And are our relationships working? Why are 50% of marriages ending in divorce? We want to find out, speak to the best experts, uh, men and women um, of all different kind of uh, theoretical persuasions, get the best ideas, share them as we're going along, but also create a transformational experience in 30 days in November. And, uh, and alongside it, start with zero traffic, zero email subscribers, and zero revenue, and share what I'm doing that works and doesn't work. So if you want to follow all that, basically join the email list on theideaslab.org, and um, that's probably a good place to start. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. And- mm. Thank you for being human. Ah, very good. Thank you.